0: Well, it seems like as my hair grows grayer, I lose more things. I used to blame my kids for those things that disappeared, but I'm beginning to think it's uh, it's me. Um, we've all lost things. It's usually little things. For instance, a few months ago, I tend to go to sporting events and I like to take my binoculars and I had a particular pair of binoculars I really liked and and uh, had used them for years, and I lost them. Couldn't find them, looked, 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 never never did find them. So I got another pair of binoculars. Well, guess what happened about a month ago? I lost those, too. Okay. And I looked around for them, looked and looked and looked. And yeah, the other thing that seems to be happening as I grow older and lose more things is my wife gets better at finding them, all right? And uh, sure enough, I told Denise, can't find these things. I guess I'm going to have to buy some new ones. And she starts looking around. Well, just so happens she looked in the same place that I'd looked, and guess what? She found it. Now, there's a lot of things that are a lot more important, more serious losses in life than binoculars. And perhaps none as painful as the rejection a young person can inflict upon parents by rejecting them in the most personal of ways. That's the focus of the parable that's at the center of our study this morning. Turn with me to Luke chapter 15 in your Bibles. Luke chapter 15. Having said that, I need to point out that the title of the sermon listed in your bulletin this morning is far too short. It reads, A a Tale of Two Sons. Well, the more I studied this passage, the more I wanted to change the title, although this is too long for the bulletin, to The Tale of Two Lost Sons, A Broken Family, and a loving father. Before we dive into this famous parable, most commonly known as the parable of the prodigal son, it's important that we have the context of this story told by our Lord Jesus Christ very clear in our minds. So Luke chapter 15, let's look at verses 1 through 3. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he, Jesus, told them this parable. Notice the tax collectors and the sinners are drawing near to him. Since the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, we're nearing the end of it at this point in Luke, Since the beginning of his public ministry, the outcasts of society, the tax collectors and the sinners, the people that we today would be called the unchurched, were drawn to the message of Jesus. While the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees and the scribes, the people that we would think of as the church people, the leaders in the church even, were offended By his message. So much so that they sought to kill him. And in just a very few months, they would actually do that. Jesus tells three parables in Luke 15. And while the tax collectors and sinners are clearly listening to his parables, each parable Jesus tells is aimed directly at the Pharisees and the scribes. And all three parables picture the joy of God over the repentance of sinners. And in verse 2 that we just read, these Pharisees and scribes say something that is much truer and wiser than they realize when they say, this man receives sinners. This man, this Jesus, receives sinners. It is what he is about. As a matter of fact, seven times in this chapter, the lostness of man is emphasized. Twice in verse four, once in verses six, eight, and nine, and then again in verses 24 and 32. The word lost recurs over and over again. A recurring theme throughout all three of these parables is this truth? Man is lost in sin, and God seeks and saves sinners. Very simple outline of chapter 15 flows right from the text. Verses 4 through 7, the parable of the lost sheep. Verses 8 to 10, the parable of the lost coin. Verses 11 and 24, 11 through 24, the story of the lost younger son. And then verses 25-32, to 32, the story of the lost older son. Now, most parables teach one main lesson. And that is the case with the first two parables in Luke 15. Let's take a look at those now. They both depict God as the active agent in the pursuit of sinners. First parable, the parable of the lost sheep, Jesus tells them And in this parable, keep in mind, the shepherd is God, the lost sheep is the sinner, and the ninety-nine are the Pharisees and the scribes. Follow along with me from verse 4. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Notice the tenderness of Jesus in verse 5. The shepherd in verse 5 lays the sheep on his shoulders and brings it home. Notice the rejoicing of verses 5 and 6. The shepherd gathers all of his friends and neighbors and has them rejoice with him in the finding of this sheep. I'm reminded of some words that Jesus spoke just a few months before this relative to shepherds and sheep. Turn over to the next Gospel, John, the Gospel of John, verse or chapter ten. Gospel of John, verse ten, chapter ten, and verse eleven. Jesus says in John ten, verse eleven, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Right there we have the Gospel. Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. Go down to verse 14. He says again, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Once once again, there it is. Christ dying for the sins of his sheep, of his people. And notice the close identification of Jesus Christ with the Father. He and the Father are one. Back to Luke chapter 15. The point Jesus is making in this parable is God is actively seeking out sinners And bringing them home. Before we leave this parable, however, note verse 7. The ironic and pointed reference Jesus makes to the Pharisees, who in their self righteousness thought they needed no repentance. In verse 7, Jesus says, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That was pointed directly at the Pharisees and the scribes who didn't think they needed repentance. Yet throughout the Gospel of Luke, one of the themes is everyone needs repentance. Everyone needs repentance. But they, in their pride, thought they didn't. Now Jesus moves on and tells them the parable of the lost coin. In this parable, the woman represents God, and the lost coin is the sinner. Verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now the loss of even one coin, which represented a full day's wage, was a serious matter for a poor woman in this time. And the emphasis in this parable is on the fact that she diligently searched for it and then rejoiced with her friends and neighbors upon finding it. The point here again is on God actively and diligently seeking out lost sinners. Well, that brings us to our central passage for the morning. The story told by Jesus is one of the longest of his parables, It is also more complex with a number of points being made. It's a story of selfishness rooted in idolatry on the part of both sons. It is the story of a betrayal, but it's also the story of a loving, welcoming, and forgiving father. It's the story of repentance, it's the story of forgiveness. It's a story of celebration. And it's a story that at the very end leaves us hanging without a conclusion. In this parable, the younger son represents the tax collectors and sinners, the older son represents the Pharisees and scribes, and the father represents God. The full story runs from verse 11 to 32 but it can be broken down into two parts. Verses 11 to 24 deals with the younger son. Verses 25 to 32 deals with the older son. Let's learn about the younger son, starting in verse 11. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me and he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. This younger son wants his inheritance now. Now, for a Jewish father and his two sons, the older son would get double portion of the inheritance. So the younger son would get one-third, and the older son... Two-thirds. But when would you normally get that inheritance? While the father's alive? No. Usually you don't get the inheritance until the father's dead. Now, in effect, what this younger son is saying is, I wish you were dead. I want my money now, not later. Matter of fact, Luke uses an interesting word for property here. There's a perfectly good word in the Greek for property. But he uses the word bios, the word we get biology from. It means life. Keep in mind, at this point in time, you didn't go down to the Wells Fargo and Wells Fargo bank and withdraw all your money and then divide it up between your sons. Most of your wealth was in land and livestock. And your life was invested in that land, in that livestock. You see, the father would have had to sell some of his land. He would have had to sell, get rid of some of his livestock, give up what he has worked so hard for in order to provide this son one-third of the estate. And in effect, this son is tearing the family apart. Because the minute he gets the money from the father, who admittedly, very graciously, gives it to him, he didn't have to. Matter of fact, most fathers in this time would have beat their son and kicked him out of the house for asking for what this son asked for. Because he knew full well that he was wishing that he was dead and wanted what was his only upon his death. So the father divided... His estate. So I ask you, what is tearing this family apart at this point in time? Because the younger son, he's not just asking for money, he's taking the money and he's leaving the family. He's taking off. He's gone. What's tearing this family apart? What does the younger son really want? He wants the father's money more than he wants a relationship with his father. The younger son is willing to destroy his relationship with his father in order to get what he wants. This is idolatry. This younger son is worshiping the stuff. He doesn't love his father. He is in effect saying, Give me mine and I'm out of here. His heart was set on the things of the father, not on the father himself. He loved the money and all the pleasures derived from it. He did not love his father. Now this is obvious and open rebellion by the younger son. It is the rebellion of much of the culture we live in today. We see it in the raw materialism of the world we live in. We see it in the sexualization of nearly everything. It represents the open denial and rejection of God, His rules, His laws, His Bible, His ways, His paths, and His authority. It is the rejection of the younger son of His father. Well, what was the result in the life of this younger son? Verse 13. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and found himself or, or hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now, pigs are absolutely unclean and abhorrent to the Jews. He became so desperate, he took a job as a hired hand to a Gentile on a pig farm. A Jewish boy can't get much lower than that. A Jewish young man is at the bottom of the barrel when he does that. He was so hungry, he wanted to eat the pig food. And all his so-called friends had deserted him. God sometimes must bring difficult circumstances into our lives to get us to turn around. And so with this young man, A change is about to happen. And he comes up with the plan. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven And before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. There has evidently been a genuine change of heart in the younger son. There is true repentance here. How do you know? Well, first of all, notice who he says he sins against. First of all, he says, I sin against heaven. In a sense, say, in, in, in reality, saying, I sinned against God. He realizes how wrong he has been. And it's almost reminiscent of Psalm 51, where David pours out his heart and says, I have sinned against you and you alone, God, after his sin with Bathsheba. So he recognizes his sin is against God himself. And then he says, and I have sinned against you, my father. And then you see humility. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And not only that, his plan has him going back as a hired servant. He's not going back begging to be restored to his son. Matter of fact, he's not even going back begging to be a slave of his father. Because if he were a slave, his father would actually give him a bed to sleep in and food to eat. But he's going back as a hired servant. He's in essence a day laborer. He's going to go and work for money. Evidently his intention is to pay back his father. There's genuine repentance here. You can almost hear him rehearsing the lines he's going to say to his father when he meets him and going over and over them again to make sure he says it just right so his father will accept him back even in this limited role. Well, then the day arrives when he decides to head home. Verse 20. And he arose and came... To his father. Notice it doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say, He arose and went to his village. Or he arose and went to his home. No. He arose and went to his father, to the one he has offended and humiliated and embarrassed. He came to his father. But uh, while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. His father didn't just sit in the lounge chair in his front living room and saw the son walking up the front steps. He was looking for him. He saw him a long way off. There was an expectation and hope on the father that this younger son would return. And then he ran. Well, a wealthy man in the ancient Near East in this time wore a robe. For him to run, he would have to pull up his robe and show his legs while he ran. This, this was not something that they did, it was, it was humiliating to do it. But the father is so excited to get to his son, he runs. Verse 21, the younger son starts his speech. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But before he can get another word out, the father interrupts him. He stops him right there. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. In essence, welcome him back to the family as a son with full rights and privileges. The best robe was a sign of honor. The ring was a sign of authority. Sandals or shoes is a sign of a freedman, not of a slave, not of a hired servant. The father is restoring this son to a place of privilege in the family. Not only that, verse 23, the father says, And bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now, in the ancient Near East, meat was a delicacy. You did not eat it every day. It was a rare occasion. It was a special occasion. And not only is the father going to provide meat for this celebration, he is going to take his prized animal. He's going to take the best calf on the ranch and he's going to kill it for dinner. This is the ultimate celebration. They would keep the fattened calf for years, waiting for such a special time as this. And the father does not hesitate one little bit. This is probably the greatest celebration the father has ever put on. His younger son, who was dead to him, is alive. The son who was lost to him is found. Now, for any of us who have had a child who was estranged from us as fathers or mothers or the family, or even for those of us, like myself, who have had one of our children leave the faith, I can think of no greater joy in our hearts if that one would return This has to be a highlight time in the life of this father. This is a mountaintop experience for him. His son is back. Well, the parable could end right here. And it would be consistent with the first two parables if it did. With a focus on the fact that man is lost in sin and God seeks and saves sinners. But Jesus has more to say. And he's going to say it directly to the scribes and Pharisees through the parable, through the tale of the older son. On what is likely the happiest day, the most wonderful day of the father's life, the day when his family is reunited again, the older son will threaten to tear the family apart one more time. Verse 25, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. The younger son is safe, and he is sound physically, and he is sound spiritually. He is back. What's the response? Verse 28 but he was angry and refused to go in he was angry and refused to go in this is the older son the son who was seemingly the responsible one the one who did his work even on this day like he did it on every other day in the father's fields he is the one who stayed out of trouble The one who, like the Pharisees, knew God's Word, said his prayers daily, attended religious services every week, and outwardly obeyed the rules of the law and society. He kept the Ten Commandments. He is the moral and the upright son. Yet upon confirmation that the father has received the younger son back safe and sound, this son was angry. He could not go in to the greatest and most important celebration his father had most likely ever put on. He refused to walk in. The older son would have no part of this, and in doing so, he is humiliating and embarrassing in father and making a statement that he wants nothing to do with this. Matter of fact, at the end of verse 28, the Father comes out and entreats Him. He pleads with Him. He begs Him to come into the celebration. To be part of the celebration. Just as Jesus had begged and pleaded for the Pharisees and the scribes and the Jews to come into the kingdom. But in verse 29, the older son... Can't hold it back any longer. In response to his father's entreaties, he said, Look, these many years I have served you, or I have slaved for you, is the Greek word. And I never disobeyed your command yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Well, now it all comes spewing out. This venomous stuff from this self-righteous older son. The self-righteousness that's been hiding in the background for so long, he can hide it no more. His true heart is revealed by the circumstances that he cannot control or manipulate to his own advantage. The older son has viewed the work he has done for the father as servitude. He views that he has served him like a slave. This was not work done out of love, but out of obligation and out of necessity. His statement that he never disobeyed his command is the kind of exaggeration that comes out in the heat of the moment. His outward obedience had masked his inward rebellion against his father. He even berates the father for never even giving him a stinking little goat to celebrate with his friends. Instead, the father sacrifices the fattened calf for this younger son. And notice what he calls him. This brother. He calls him this son of yours in verse 30 he won't even acknowledge that he's his brother. The older son is convinced all of this is unfair. The father owed him more than this, more than to share all the family land and livestock again with this immoral and rebellious younger brother. The older son earned better than this from his father, didn't he? So I ask you, What is tearing this family apart now? What does the older son want? Well, he wants the younger son out of the family. He doesn't want to share the things of the father with the younger son. And he wants all of that more than he wants a relationship with his father. The older son is willing to destroy that relationship with his father in order to get what he wants or at least to risk that he will get what he wants. This is idolatry, too. But this is a more difficult kind of idolatry to see. It masquerades as faithfulness. But this older son idolatry, it wants the blessings that come from the father without the relationship of the father. This older son, idolatry, loves the things of the father, but not the father himself. It is clear the older son was obeying just to get the things of his father. He did not love the father. He did not want what the father wanted. He did not love the things that the father loved. Notice how the father responds. Verse 31. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Notice, the father is not going to budge one bit on how this celebration upon the return of the younger son, this son who was lost and is now found, this son who is dead and now alive, the father is not going to budge one bit that this was a fitting and right and proper celebration and I have done the right thing here. But at the same time, he leaves open the invitation to his older son to come. And join the celebration. He is inviting the older son, and by implication, Jesus is showing his concern and his love, even for the Pharisees and the scribes, to repent, to come into the kingdom. He says it is fitting to celebrate and be glad over these wonderful events and invites the Pharisees to join as well. Now, whether we fit the characteristics of the younger son or the older son, overall, the message is the same. We are lost. You and I are lost sinners, and God seeks to save sinners. But lest we be deceived, we might be in the same situation as the older brother. Let us not forget our sinful hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. In the last couple of weeks, Pastor Pat has been teaching on the de Christianization of Christianity. The biggest dangers, points one and two, that he pointed out for us is moralism and legalism. These are two dangers that we as people and as a church and other churches like us face. We can give the impression sometimes that being a Christian is about obeying the Ten Commandments, about going to church, about reading my Bible every day, about praying every day. I know there are times I have given that impression to my own children. And I repent of that. Now these things can be good things. But they are only good things if they flow out of a love of and a worship of and a passion for our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of His righteous life and death to pay the penalty for our sins. We must see Him as glorious. We must see Him as beautiful. We must love Him. We are called to love, trust, and depend upon Him and on nothing else, as our reading from Mark 8 talked about this morning. In this parable, Jesus calls on Pharisees to give up their moralism and their legalism and come to God alone for their righteousness. Let's look at an example of one who did just that. And the words as he uses to describe it. Turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. If you know where Philippians is, that's fine. Go there. If you don't know where Philippians is, that's fine. Just listen. Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul is warning the Philippian church about trusting in their own works to get them to heaven, to make them acceptable before God. And he's telling them that his qualifications, Paul's qualifications, would certainly make it if anybody's could. If Paul could put his qualifications, his good deeds, his accomplishments, his position on a balance and scale it out with his his sin, he His good works would outweigh his sin if anybody could do it. But his point is, nobody can. Starting in verse 5, he lists off his qualifications as a Pharisee. Philippians 3, verse 5, Paul says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. If anybody's works would be acceptable before God, Paul says it would be mine. But how does he evaluate all of those things in light of Christ? Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see, nothing else will do. Nothing else will do. We have to be so careful not to build our lives and not to communicate that Christianity that following Christ is about the things of God because it's not about the things of God it's not about keeping the 10 commandments it's not about coming to Omaha Bible church every week it's not even about going to care group every other week or about reading our bibles every day and there's nothing wrong with those things But they have to be based upon a trust and a dependence and a love of Jesus Christ. Because apart from that, we're just Pharisees. We're just Pharisees and scribes looking down on the tax gatherers and the sinners. Instead of reaching out with them with the message of hope that Jesus Christ proclaimed and gathered the outcasts of society to Himself to her the message to come and believe in Christ and to have eternal life in Him. We don't want to be Pharisees. We don't want to be scribes. We want to realize that we serve a God who seeks and saves those who are lost, his children whom he has called. Let us pray. Father God, we are humbled by the compassion of your Son, Jesus Christ, to take the time even in his earthly ministry to portray in such wonderful Moral lessons in parables before the Pharisees and the scribes. The error of their ways. And what the solution to their problem is. For they, like we, Father, need to see themselves as sinners. As wretched sinners. Unworthy to be in your presence. Unworthy to have eternal life. Unworthy to have a relationship with you. But, Father, I pray we would count all those earthly things, those things we want to trust in, those things we want to take pride in, those things we want to stake our claim on as rubbish, as garbage, in light of knowing Christ, in order to gain Christ, in order to be found in Christ. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.